The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust him, but with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into darkness. Nineveh is a pool, and its water is draining away. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. The supply is endless, the wealth from all its treasures. She is pillaged, plundered, stripped. Hearts melt, knees give way, bodies tremble. Every face grows pale. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will burn up your chariots in smoke, and the sword will devour your young lions. I will leave you no prey on the earth. The voice of your messengers will no longer be heard. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses, and jolting chariots. Charging cavalry, flashing swords, and glittering spears. Many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses. All because of the wanton lust of a harlot. Alluring, the mistress of sorceries, who enslaved nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdom your shame. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt. And on, I will make you a spectacle. All who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is in ruins. Who will mourn for her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? O king of Assyria, your shepherds slumber. Your nobles lie down to rest. Your people are scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. Nothing can heal your wound. Your injury is fatal. Everyone who hears the news about you claps his hands at your fall. For who has not 
felt your endless cruelty. Father, we do thank you for your word this morning. No matter how hard it can be to read at times, we know that it applies to our lives today. So, Father, we ask you to guide us this morning, to lead us through the words of the prophet Nahum. And we help you, ask you to help us gain insight into how to apply this to our lives today. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray together. Amen. The last time we were together, we kicked off our sermon series, J.J. and the Prophets. And we did that by studying God's character and his calling on Jonah's life. If you remember, he was called to go to Nineveh and to warn those people, those wicked people, to repent of what they were doing. And despite his disobedience, despite his salty attitude, God used him and the people of Nineveh repented. And throughout that story that God wrote, we learned three very important things about God's character. Number one, God is sovereign over all things. Number two, that God chooses to do his work through his people. And then lastly, that God is a loving and gracious Savior. But some of you may be saying, hold on a second. God is a loving and gracious Savior? Doesn't sound like it in those words you just read. I like the God of Jonah last week. He was full of patience. He was full of love. He was full of forgiveness. He was full of kindness. I like that God. Those words you read this morning, I don't like those words. That God sounds angry. That God sounds merciless. That God sounds judgmental. I don't like that God. But the truth is, there's one God. The truth is, it's the same God. And what I want to do this morning is to take our time together and dig into the book of Nahum and to learn more, richer understanding of really who God is. Now those words that I read this morning are from the book of Nahum. They were given to Nahum from God to the nation of Assyria, specifically to the people of Nineveh. They had walked away from what they were doing and God's word of divine judgment was against them. Now we don't know really much about Nahum at all, all throughout scripture. The only thing that we know about him is what we see in verse one, that his hometown was Elkosh. And even that's a little sketchy because the biblical scholars even debate on what the general area of where he lived. But we do know 
that through the timeline established on some of the um, historical facts given, that we do know that he was a contemporary of Jeremiah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. And I want to talk about that um, just a little bit. But even though we don't know much about the author, we do know what this book is about. And I summarize that through those really harsh, direct words spoken by God. He is tired of what the Ninevites were doing, and he was going to issue judgment against them. Now, 140 years had lapsed between when Jonah went and they repented to when this book was written in about 650, um, 650 B.C. See, time changes all things, right? We say that. You look over, you look at your memories on Facebook and say, wow, that's really my kid five years ago? Time changes all things. Well, it's true in Nineveh as well. Right, These, the, the, the people that repented back in, 650 BC, in 750 BC, the, their children had children, and those children had children, and a hundred years go by. The king who repented has been replaced. And so the repentance is long forgotten. The time of sorrow over what they had been doing was nothing more than a speed bump on their road and path of destruction against people. And at this time in history, they once again sought to capture, to torture, and enslave the people that surrounded them. And the truth is that at this point in time, their brutality was at its all-time peak. They were under the rule of a guy named King Ashurbanipal. And he reigned from 669 B.C. to 627 B.C. And God was tired of it. And he is issuing, at the height of this brutality, at the height of their cruelty, I am done. All right, so let me just set a little bit of context for you guys, because this kind of fills in the picture. So 750 BC, God sends Jonah to Nineveh to get them to repent. About the same time, the people of Nineveh weren't the only people behaving badly. Who else was behaving badly? The Israelites were behaving badly again. And God sent two prophets to them, Amos and Hosea. And God had it with them. Years and years and years of their disobedience, and he was finally done with them. So he sends the prophet for them, uh, prophets to them. And it's like a tale of two cities. The people of Nineveh repent, but his own people, the people of Israel, don't. And in 722 BC, 28 years after Jonah went to Nineveh, God issues judgment on the Israelites. He sends in Assyria, and the Assyrians ransack the city and carry off the Israelites to Assyria, where they live in exile, never to be restored. Okay? Then, see, all you have left are the people in Judah now, the southern kingdom. 
and the Assyrians are pressing on them and leaning into them also. And then in 686 BC, and this whole timeline, guys, I'll give you a lot more detail in your bulletin. But in 686 BC, King Manasseh comes into power in Judah. And it is well written that that, that King Manasseh was the most evil king. He was wicked and he reigned the longest. 50 years he was in power. And not only was he wicked, but he also became a loyal vassal to Assyria. He became friendly with them. He became sympathetic to them. So the poor people in Judah or just under this awful oppression from the Assyrians, from their own king, the 10 tribes of northern Israel have been carried off into captivity, and now the people of Nineveh are continuing their ruthless, brutal assault on people, and God says, enough is enough. And he writes the book of Nahum for two reasons. He writes this book first to about Nineveh saying, ruthless, evil empires based on wickedness and based on brutality, you will be defeated. You will be wiped out. But there's also a message to the people of Judah that says, God says, my righteous kingdom will prevail. My righteous kingdom will live on forever. Look at Nahum chapter two, verse two. Said the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob. Like the splendor of Israel, though destroyers have laid them waste and have ruined their vines. So as we look into the book of Nahum, you're going to notice right out of the chute that it's only three chapters. It's even shorter than Jonah was. And I outline the book as follows. Chapter 1, we talks about Nineveh's judge. Chapter 2 is Nineveh's judgment. And in chapter 3 is Nineveh's total destruction. Now what's clear in those words that I started with this morning, what the, what the, who the judge was, right? It wasn't the Arameans, it wasn't the Babylonians, it wasn't the Israelites, it was God. The Lord God Almighty was the one who was going to judge. And there's one particular phrase as I read through this book that sends chills down my spine every time I read it. Four simple words. I am against you. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. Who in the right mind would want the creator of the universe against them? Who in the right mind is going to stand by somebody who the Lord is against? 
Who is going to defend them? Who is going to come along their side? The defeat so certain that you can see the sarcasm in the words of of Nahum in uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Listen to this. An attacker advances against you, Nineveh. Guard the fortress, watch the road, brace yourselves, marshal all your strength. Yeah, right. <laughs> like that's going to matter coming up against the Lord Almighty. Now certainly these words would have weighed like a ton of bricks on the people of Nineveh. Right, They would have come as this major disappointment that the Lord God Almighty is against you. But those very same words, when the people of Judah read them, would have, would have come across as a, as, a, as a major relief to them because of everything that they were facing. They would have been like, thank God. And look at the promise that is made to them in chapter 1, verse 15. Look, there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, O Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you they will be completely destroyed. Right, so you got these poor people of Judah sitting there under the pressure of the Assyrians, under the evil King Manasseh, pressing on them, breathing down their neck. These words would have been like salve on a wound. And then Nahum encourages them, Stay strong until God defeats them. Look at chapter 1, verse 7. The Lord is good, a refuge in the times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. He will make, um, he cares for those who trust in him with an overwhelming flood. He will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into darkness. Nahum's telling him, listen, don't worry about Assyria. God's got that handled. He's going to deal with them. They are going to be defeated. They are going to be wiped off the face of the earth. But until he does, remain strong. The Lord's on your side. Lean into him. Trust in him for perseverance. Trust in him for everything that you need. So how does God promise to get rid of the people of Nineveh? Well, he's going to use the very thing that the people of Nineveh placed their trust in. And that is water. So we see in chapter 2, verse 8, he says, Nineveh is like a pool. It's water draining away. What use is of a pool with its water draining away? Nothing. 
So God's going to use the very thing that Nineveh placed their trust in. See, Nineveh trusted in water, not God. Check this out. So Nineveh is a huge city. Huge city, thousands of acres. And it was planted right on the Tigris River. And they relied on this river and trusted in this river for their sustenance to grow their, their, their crops, to feed themselves, to f- drink themselves for their animals. They completely relied on the water, not only for sustenance, but also protection. Remember last week I said that Nineveh was surrounded by moats. The outer one, 150 feet wide, 60 foot deep. And there was a tributary that came off the Tigris into the city, through the city, out the other side, and look, feeding the moats. So they relied on water for their sustenance. They relied on water for their protection. So their trust was in water and not God. And then we read earlier, Nahum chapter one, verse eight, an overwhelming flood will make an end of Nineveh. The very thing they trusted in, God was going to use as the centerpiece of their downfall. So what happened is that the Babylonians moved in and they went to a reservoir. They blocked up the river, dammed it up, and the water built up, built up, built up, built up, and then they released it. And the rushing water came busting through the river gates, under road, undermined the foundations of the walls, and it created a huge gaping hole inside the city which allowed them to be attacked. Now remember, listen to the words in the, the, the verse tense in this scripture. It is present tense. This is a book of prophecy, not a historical book. Nahum chapter two, verse six to eight. The river gates are thrown open and the palace collapses. It's decreed that the city be exiled and carried away. Its slave girls moan like doves and beat upon their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool and its water is draining away. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. So the city would be besieged. All her glory would be gone and they would be left with nothing. And why was this judgment issued against them? Well, we know it's because of disobedience. We know it's because of idolatry. But there's one more thing revealed here, which is very, very telling. And we see it in Nahum chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, and don't miss this, never, never without victims. 
See, this judgment came not only because of, of their idolatry, right? We know what they thought about God. But this also says that judgment came because of how they treated people. Your brutality, your, your enslavement, your cruelty, the way you treated those people is part of the reason that this is going to happen to you. And because you did those things, chapter three, verse five to seven, I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt and I'll make you a spectacle. All who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is in ruins. Who will mourn for her? Where can I find anyone to confront you? He says, I am against you. I'm gonna lift your skirt over your face, he says. That's kind of a sketchy thing to say in church. But what God is saying is, I'm going to expose you. You're a fraud. I'm gonna lift your skirt and I'm gonna show your enemies. I'm gonna show the world that you are a prostitute. You're not a virgin. I'm gonna expose for the world to see exactly who you are. I'm gonna expose to everyone exactly what you did. And who is going to care? Who is going to mourn you? You haven't treated people the right way. What you've been doing is wrong. I'm going to expose you and no one is going to care. And this is exactly what happens. In 612 B.C., when the Babylonians back up that water and flood the city. In fact, it is so accurate that there are a group of people who believe that this is a book of history written after the fact instead of a book of prophecy. And no one did care. No one came to defend them. In fact, no one really even remembered them. It wasn't until 2,600 years later that in 1840s to when the British evacuated the old city of Nineveh. And it's amazing. It, a lot of the artifacts are in the British Museum. There's a lot written about this. But the stone wallpaper that's about three inches thick depict the brutality and everything that came with them. And it has done nothing but to support the inerrancy of Scripture. Fascinating study. You guys should do that. But you know what's interesting to me? Do you know who controlled that very land up until the early part of this year? ISIS. And you know who controls it now? Iraq. 
Go figure. So Nahum is a lot different than the book of Jonah. There's no repentance. There's no happy ending. There is simply judgment by the almighty God leading him to wipe out a race of people right off of the earth. So the challenge to us this morning is a tall one. 2 Timothy 3, 6, 3, 16, 17 tells us that all God's word, every word of it, is useful for teaching, correcting, and rebuking. So how do we take a book that's so heavy, that's so negative, and draw out truth that we can apply to our lives as we walk out the door? And I think in studying this closely, we can at least see four key principles, four characteristics of God that we can apply to our lives today. You can follow along again in your sermon notes, but the first one we very clearly see in this book is that God will display his wrath and issue judgment. He did it to the people of Nineveh. God avenged what they did by wiping them off the face of the earth. God did it to his own people of Israel. He used the Assyrians and carried them off into exile because of their disobedience and idolatry. God will issue his judgment. What we do matters. What we do in our lives matters to God. And when we do things against him, he wants us to repent. Just like he wanted the people of Nineveh to repent. Just like he wanted the people of Israel to repent. God will judge. But the good news is this. It's my second point. Is that God is patient with us. Nahum chapter 1 verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger. Great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. See, the Lord does not rush to that judgment. See, he doesn't flip his lid like we do and have an emotional response. If he did, half of us wouldn't even make it to the parking lot after the service. God's not like that. His word says that he is patient. He doesn't react emotionally. He's careful. He gathers evidence. He weighs it. He considers it. He displays patience in that process. He warns us. He convicts us. He tries to get us to turn away from the things that are against him. Look what the Lord himself says. When he passed in front of Moses, when Moses came down the mountain with the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments, 
This is what God himself says. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 to 7. The Lord, the Lord is compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. This is the very same verse that Jonah quoted when he was all ticked off at God because he let the Ninevites repent. He said, God, I didn't want to go. I knew you were like this. I knew you were compassionate. I knew you were going to let them off the hook, and I didn't want to be any part of that. See, but he's patient. He gives us time. And think about the book of Nahum. When did I say the book of Nahum was written? 650 B.C. And when did I say the city of Nineveh was destroyed? 612 B.C. That's 38 years. Guys, that's a whole generation of people. God says, I am going to judge you. And he gave them 38 years to respond. God is patient. Wants to convict us. Drawing us away from what separates us from him. Think about the Israelites. How many cycles in scripture do we see that them falling away from God. Time after time, they would cry out to God and God would send a deliverer. God would let them repent and restore them. You want a little taste of God's patience? Read the book of Judges. God is unbelievably patient with us. And that patience comes out of his love for us. See, just because God judges us doesn't mean that God doesn't love us. The whole reason God does judge us is because he loves us. And this takes me to the third point that God's love and judgment go hand in hand. God's judgment and love are not mutually exclusive. That would lead us to believe that at any moment in time that God loves me right now. In another moment in time that God is judging me right now. See, God's love and forgiveness is not on one side of the spectrum and God's wrath and anger on the other side of the spectrum. And it's easy to fall into that line of thinking, right? Because the pure definition of judgment means that there's a penalty handed out. There's a penalty handed out for the wrongdoer. And the very dish, um, definition of love and compassion on the other side is that there's forgiveness and mercy for the wrongdoer. 
And those things seem to conflict with each other. And so when we read the book of Jonah, we're like, that's my God. That he's patient and loving, gives us time to relent, or let us relent from his judgment against us. If all if I do is repent, that's the God, my God. And then we read the book of Nahum on the other side that says, that's not my God. <laughs> Thank goodness he isn't like that anymore. But see, God's love and his judgment, they are together as one in his character. And the best demonstration of that, the best demonstration of that comes in the human form of God himself, Jesus Christ. John 3, 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. See, it's because of his love. Not his anger, not his wrath, not his judgment, but because of his love, he sent Jesus as the one to take on the wrath, to take on the judgment for the things that we have done. See, just because it says, God so loved us, he didn't stop being just. Those sins are real. And they were done against him. And God is a righteous judge. Someone had to make those sins right. And Jesus is the one that atoned for them. See, out of his love for you and for me, He chose his son to bear the wrath, to bear the judgment of what we did. That he hung on a cross at Calvary. He was buried for three days and rose again. So that our relationship with him can be restored our penalty, our judgment, and God's wrath against us forgiven forever. And Jesus' desire is that all people repent and experience the benefit of salvation just as the Ninevites had the opportunity to. And that's my last point, that God desires every person to repent. Every single one of us. See, if you have a relationship with Jesus today, he wants you to repent. He wants you to repent of the things that you have placed before him. He wants you to repent of the things that stand in the way of your relationship with him. He wants you to repent of the things that you bow down to and you hold up higher than him. The things that you have placed in between you and him. He wants you to come before him. You're not going to tell him anything he doesn't know. But he wants you to bow before him 
Acknowledge him as the almighty God, as the judge, and say, I am sorry for what I have done against you, for the things that I have put between me and you, for the things that I lift up higher than you. God wants you to repent. And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, he wants you to repent of the things that you have made gods in your life. He wants you to repent of your unbelief of his son, Jesus. He wants you to come before him and say, God, I am sorry that I have placed my trust and my hope and my confidence in my salary, in my job, in my family, in my car, in my pride. I am sorry that I worship these things and not you, the only true and living God. And let me tell you something. Every one of us, every one of us are going to stand before God at the end of the day on the great day of judgment. And if you have a personal relationship with Jesus, you are going to give an account of what you have done in your life. Now for us, it's not going to be a matter of heaven or hell. Our faith in Jesus secures our eternity in heaven with God. For us, we're going to give an account to him. Right? He's entrusted us with time, talent, and treasure. And we're going to stand before him, and we are going to give an account with, for what we did with what he has entrusted to us. And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, when you get to that point in front of the Almighty God, the judge, I'm sorry to say that it's going to be too late. That the Almighty God will judge you for your unbelief. And the sentence will be an eternity separated from him in hell. We will all stand before him. So you have an opportunity now, today, to come to him in repentance because that's what God desires from all of us. See, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter how long the list is or how awful and miserable and dirty the things are in your past. He's standing there with his arms wide open saying, come to me. There's nothing that you can take to him that Jesus has not already suffered the wrath and judgment for. There's only one sin that's unforgivable, 
and that is the sin of unbelief. Romans chapter 2, verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you were storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. It's to believers, right? To those who by persistence in doing good, glory, honor, immortality, he will give eternal life. For the unbeliever though, but for those who were self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Guys, God wants you to repent. It doesn't matter what you've done, how bad you think it may be. Our loving Father, the creator of the universe is standing there with his arms wide open waiting for you to come to him and say, I am sorry for what I have done against you. God wants us all to repent.